From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. Things have gotten a little contentious in Austin as state lawmakers push for their priorities with the legislative session nearing its end. Then, election season isn't over yet. There are several runoff elections next month, including the race for Fort Worth mayor. And finally, as summer nears, a health expert weighs in on the safest way to enjoy vacations and summer camps. Before we start, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe to the Lone Star Politics Podcast. Those little things go a long way towards helping us grow the show. No candidate received more than 50% of the vote in last month's race to replace Fort Worth Mayor Betsy Price, so Maddie Parker and Deborah Peoples will head to a runoff. Parker is Price's former chief of staff, and Peoples is the chair of the Tarrant County Democratic Party. Here are the candidates in a joint interview with Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers. Both candidates are with us this morning. We really appreciate that. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. And we flipped a coin, and Deborah Peoples, you get the first answer. You both have the same question. What makes you the best choice? Oh, absolutely. It's I'm this great combination of community and corporate. For anybody who knows me, I spent 35 years in the corporate environment. I, I am a, an established leader. I know how to build teams and collaborate and bring people together. But I'm also this curious combination of community. Uh, Julie and Gromer, I've been in this community since 1979. There is not one area of the city that I have not worked in, volunteered in, fought for, cried over. And so when you put that love of community and that bond that I've established with the community together with my executive leadership skills, I believe I am the best candidate to move us forward. Maddie Parker, same question. What makes you the best choice? Thanks, Julie. Uh, Maddie Parker, pleasure to be with you on a Sunday morning to talk to Fort Worth residents. You know, for 17 years, I've been really fortunate to be behind the scenes in some very pivotal moments for our state, state, federal, and local public service. I'm a licensed attorney. I'm raising my three beautiful children here in Fort Worth with my husband, David. I have the experience, the leadership, and really the tenacity to bring people together. Um, I have been known during my career as a consensus builder, someone that works with all people from all sides of the aisle to really promote community first and build big ideas. Um, right now is go time in the city of Fort Worth. And what I mean by that is economically, what do we want to be as a large city moving forward? What does it look like to be a uniting voice across this country in what has been a very divisive last year and really four years? Um, and then lastly, what does it look like to have a large city led by someone in the millennial generation? Someone that understands what it looks like to take the torch and run with it, but at the same time, at the same time pay homage and respect to the history and heritage of Fort Worth that has maintained our greatness so far and really work on the challenges ahead. All right, all right. Let, let's talk a little bit about police reform. And Maddie Parker, let's, let's keep it here with you. Have enough steps been taken in that regard to, to reform po policing in Fort Worth? And do you think there should be a citizens review board? So, Gromer, I think it's important to know for any city, everyone should be continuing to do this work. Um, and I'm very proud of the city of Fort Worth and the creation of the police monitor's office head by Kim Neal. Um, our new chief of police, who I'm sure you all have interviewed, Chief Neil Noakes, is doing a fantastic job on working on what it looks like to really move the community forward and ensure that we're working alongside community. When it comes to a citizen review board, I've answered this question numerous times intentionally, which is I think it's irresponsible for our elected leaders or prospective elected leaders to get out in front of the professionals we've hired to really tackle these tough questions. 
And I look forward to sitting down with Kim Neal, her citizens board that she's been working with, the independent review panel, Chief Neal Noakes, command staff, and importantly, community members across Fort Worth, Texas to understand what it looks like to bridge the gap between community and policing. This is much more multifaceted than one board or CIV. This is about really uniting the city of Fort Worth and also tackling some of our toughest challenges that our police officers are facing with rising crime levels. I've maintained this often. Our officers are asked to be all things to all people all the time. And I'm incredibly proud to have the endorsement of our Police Officers Association because I understand they know first and foremost how difficult and hard the job is. At the same time, they all have a servant's heart ready to lead forward. All right, Deborah Peoples, same question. So I think you all know, this is a question near and dear to my heart. So the first thing I'm gonna tell you, I am the sister of a policeman. I am the sister of a constable. So I understand this issue from the eyes, through the eyes of law enforcement, but also I am a woman of color. And so I, I also am gonna tell you, so Gromer, you ask about a citizens review board, and I'm gonna tell you city leadership put together a blue ribbon commission of the best and the brightest citizens from around Fort Worth. and get Guess what? they recommended a citizens review board. And then the city leaders decided that wasn't the answer that they wanted. So they ignored the will of the people. They did not listen to this blue ribbon commission that they appointed and they they decided to water down the recommendation. I believe, uh, I believe in our police department, but I also believe in our community and listening to the voices of our citizens. We've got to find new funds for prevention. We've got to get make sure that we are giving the officers the training that they need, but we are also providing those preventative services. And we cannot, and under my leadership, will not subvert the will of the people. That race and culture task force was a, a group of citizens, outstanding stellar citizens from around the city, and they recommended it and we ignored it. And I... Um, that concerns me greatly that we would ignore the will of the people. And the second thing, the last thing I'm going to tell you is I believe that the mayor has to be above the fray in this whole discussion around public safety. The mayor serves not only the police department, but the citizens of the city. And for that reason, I neither sought nor asked for funds from law enforcement because I believe the mayor has to be positively neutral in this. All right, let, let's stay with you, Ms. Peoples, a former Fort Worth police officer Aaron Dean is going on mm -hmm. uh, on trial and charges in related to charges in the murder of Tatiana Jefferson. Yeah. How do you plan to address this? How do you keep the city whole? Well, I, so I think I am perfectly poised to do that. I am a woman of color. I live in the same community where a Tatiana Jefferson was murdered. I understand the anguish in that community, but I also am a resident of this city and love this city. I think the mayor has to lead the charge to heal this city. The mayor has to be out there asking for calm, listening to our citizens, understanding what's going on. And so I will be that agent of healing. I will work to bring the entire community together, police, community, the citizens, 
everyone because this is a critical juncture in how we move forward with race relations, how we celebrate diversity and inclusion in this city. And as the, as the mayor, I will be out there to promote healing and togetherness. And as you know, my mantra is one Fort Worth. We are all in this together. We all are hurting because of the murder of a Tatiana. We all will move forward and heal together. Okay, Ms. Parker, same question for you. So the, the moment that um, Tatiana was killed, I was working at the city at City Hall and I understand the anguish that our city faced um, and the tough decisions that our leaders had to make. Um, as soon as this, this summer, we're gonna have a trial of which there's a lot of misinformation. What will happen when we sequester the jury? Um, will we have a change of venue? Um, and along the same lines of Ms. Peoples mentioned, it is imperative that your mayor maintains calm and focus at a grassroots level across the city of Fort Worth. I would just encourage those viewers that are out there listening to us tonight is understand the difference in tactic and experience that the two of us bring to the table. Um, this is not the time to post divisive messages on social media. This is not the time to poke holes in the things that have gone wrong in the past. We're here to move Fort Worth forward and understand that it's imperative that we never have an incident like what happened to Tatiana again. What does that mean to change policing for the better? What does it mean for training and tactics behind the scenes that have nothing to do with the way citizens serve? And lastly, what does it look like to work with Fort Worth citizens of all walks of life, all races and cultures to understand what it looks like to work together in really, really difficult times? And this moment is one of those for the city of Fort Worth. And we're going to stay with you, Ms. Parker. Panther Island is a major issue in the city. How do you go about fixing that project after so much money has been spent? I think the first thing we have to remember is we must have a plan B to understand. I know that Congresswoman Granger, Congressman Vesey, and others in the delegation are working hard in Washington, D.C. to bring additional money into the Army Corps project. We have to prepare ourselves for the reality that may not happen. What is our plan B here in Fort Worth? And it includes the private sector. There are world-class developers that would love to be at the table to help us solve these problems. We've built three bridges on dry land because of engineering decisions. It is what it is. We must be solutions-oriented. Pointing fingers and being frustrated about past decisions won't do us any good. Um, we're going to be building this project um, for decades to come. Transformative opportunity to double the size of downtown and really put Fort Worth on the map. And I want to bring multiple jurisdictions together, including Tarrant County, the Regional Water District, and the City of Fort Worth to ask the questions, how do we proceed forward without it being on the backs of our taxpayers here in Fort Worth and Tarrant County that have, have, burned the, have had the burden up until this point? And lastly, I'll just say this. There's no one that understands the complexities of a project like this better than myself. Understanding what it's going to take to bring the Army Corps back to the table. Is it going to be privately funded, publicly funded, um, a mixture of such? But transparency and accountability have to be the two the most important things we do as a community to move this project forward. Deborah Peoples. So I, I love this. So I'm going to tell you, you don't have just have a plan B, but you have to have a plan C, D, E, F. And that's what good experienced leaders do, is they know that you have to look at it from uh, a variety of ways. But I want to remind people that Panther Island and this whole issue around the water district it's, there are two parts to that. The first part of that was flood control. And as a resident of the east side where flooding has concern, has uh, occurred and that people have drowned and we've lost lives, we need to be zoned 
zone A on making sure that the next mayor is working with our leaders and not getting caught up in petty squabbles and petty divisive things to make sure that that part goes through and we are providing our citizens with safety and making sure that flooding does not take lives. And then the second part of that is the idea around the commercial development. And I, as somebody who raised the flag in 2019 when I first ran for mayor, we cannot continue to tax our citizens to debt. That is not what a good leader does. It does not put that burden on the back of its citizens. And so we need to develop these public-private partnerships, but we also need a leader who knows how to negotiate, who knows how to collaborate, who knows how to bring people to the table so that we find monies that are not coming out of our citizens' pockets. And that is one of the things that I do best. Deborah Peoples and Maddie Deborah Parker, Peoples. candidates for Fort Worth mayor, we want to thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you. Early voting in that race begins Monday and runs through June 1st. Election day is June 5th. In Austin, the Texas legislative session is down to just one more week. House lawmakers have expressed frustration that some of their priorities have not made progress in the state's Senate. The House went on recess Friday morning to Sunday afternoon, despite a calendar that was already set for the weekend. As the days wind down, the Dallas Morning News Austin Bureau Chief Bob Garrett talks to Julian Gromer about what to expect before the session ends. Bob, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Julie. Bob, surprised to see this move from the House in the home stretch? A little bit, but you know, as Gromer can tell you, often late in the session, tensions between the House and Senate spill over. We've seen uh, occasions where, you know, delegations would march to the other end of the Capitol in a kind of a menacing way to display their displeasure. Uh, this one was a little unusual to, to recess. Uh, for two days to kind of ratchet up the pressure and send a signal to the Senate that the House was not happy with disrespect shown some bills on criminal justice reform and on uh, Medicaid changes. So, Bob, we may have an agreement. Uh, I mean, last week there was a, a budget kind of deal, right? Uh, what are the major points, you think? Well, I think the main point is Unlike a year a year ago in the middle of the pandemic, we thought the budget would be very tough to write. Right. It was pretty easy to write, Gromer. They, they got a lot of federal uh, COVID relief money. They got property values rising, which reduces the state's IOUs to public schools. Uh, and they did restrain spending. So they turned out to have a budget where they could continue the 2019 school finance overhaul and boost of school funding and, and some restraint of local property taxes. All right, Bob, and, and the other big issue in the legislature, the conference committee is meeting on a voting bill. The Senate and House versions are, are very different. Of course, Democrats were happy that they had got some, some amendments on the House version. What's the bottom line here? Well, whatever is passed, Gromer, right. you can be sure that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and Governor Greg Abbott, who are both facing re-election next year, will beat their chest and say they've done something to uh, improve election integrity and the security of the ballot box. Uh, whether that's actually true or not, whether this stuff really 
makes elections more reliable or suppresses voting. We'll just have to wait and see the fine print and what happens. You know, a lot of the claims, as you well know, on election legislation are uh, a little bit hyperventilated. Yeah, Bob, and I think a lot of this is how far does Dan Patrick and the Senate want to push this, right? That's right. Yeah, they had a bill with a lot of very stiff penalties, which, you know, could could send a whole wave of geezers like me who are poll volunteers into retirement. Uh, they're not going to take a risk of being charged criminally for a mistake. There, there's, of course, uh, a definite full stop to the Democrats' drive to have easier mail-in balloting, too. All right. The legislature, Bob, had such a focus on weatherizing the power grid after the storm, but where did that really end up? You know, Julie, there is a requirement emerging in the bill likely to pass, uh, Senate Bill 3, that electricity generators weatherize. And on the natural gas side, which was a huge problem, as you know, in February, they're going to do a mapping of what is critical infrastructure on the gas supply chain that feeds these electrical generators and then require only those that are critically part of that supply system to weatherize. But, you know, the state will have to stick with this. And one fear some people have is that the further we get from the February 2021 event, uh, the harder it's going to be to crack down on companies to pay money out of their pockets to weatherize for occasional weather events. Some Democrats have called this the worst session ever, while Republicans are really getting some of their agenda items through. How, how does this set up 2022, you think? It's a conservative red meat session. The Republicans are, are feeling their oats. They won big in 2020 in Texas, and they are uh, pushing it all on the Republican primary next year, hoping they don't get primary and, you know, the general election be damned, Gromer. They're not worried about swing voters and Democrats running them out of office. Bob Garrett, our friend, we miss you with the Dallas Morning News. Come see us soon, okay? Will do, Julie. The 87th Texas Legislature ends May 31st. Finally, we turn to the coronavirus pandemic. The CDC says vaccinated Americans no longer need to wear a mask in most settings, while children who are 12 to 15 years old are now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. Meanwhile, Governor Greg Abbott on Tuesday signed an executive order preventing government entities from requiring face masks. School districts can require them until June 4th. As the school year nears its end and families plan to go on vacation or send children to summer camps, Dr. John Carlo with Prism Health North Texas joins Julian Gromer to help explain how to enjoy summer safely. Dr. John Carlo, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me here today. Let's, you know, a lot of changes in the last few weeks regarding masks. I mean, talk about how this goes heading into summer. Well, you know, I, a lot of changes. It's hard to keep up, isn't it? We have gone from, you know, a situation where we should, we should all be wearing masks uh, to conditional mask wearing to questions on uh, who should wear masks, perhaps if vaccinated, what environments and what settings. And then ultimately, we've had our governor weigh in on um, further executive orders around not wearing masks or not requiring masks. So it, it, it's a lot of different things that have happened over the last two weeks around around the mask use. Uh, you know, we know that masks are effective. We know they work. Uh, 
um, that it's been proven. And um, not just for coronavirus, remember, we didn't have a flu season this year. And I'm, for one, excited that I didn't get the flu this year. I didn't get any common colds. And so we know that what we did was, was working. Um, so, you know, going into the summer, I think we should, number one, use common sense. Um, there are situations where we definitely know being indoors with a lot of people we don't know or don't know their vaccination status, let's continue to wear a mask. Uh, if we're outside, um, we don't need to wear a mask. You know, if we're around a close group of people where we know their vaccination status, let's not wear masks. So I think it, it, it's very possible to do this correctly. I think it just takes a little, some common sense, and then also just keeping up with what, what the re recommendations are. Do you think the, uh, the federal government, the CDC, everybody needs to do a better job at messaging? Because there's just a lot of confusion out there. And, and I know people that, you know, you go from county to county or city to city, you may leave your mask in a car and it's no big deal, but then you go somewhere and, and they're like, hey, hey, where's your mask? What do we need to do in terms of the messaging? You know, I think everyone would agree from the highest levels of CDC all the way down through local health officials uh, and everywhere in between, we could have done a better job with messaging. Um, we knew this was an incredibly complicated situation. This was a high stakes uh, situation we were all dealing with. This was life or death at many times along the way. Um, you know, everybody was trying to do the best they can and trying to keep that information uh, current, accurate, factual, and useful. Um, and I think the struggle was that this messaging kept changing so quickly. So I think that we've got to learn how to connect better um, from where we are, you know, where we're heading, and where we were um, as part of that message so we don't lose people along the way. The hardest part is to change that message, right? You know, we go from point A to point B. And if you don't talk about how you move from point A to point B, you lose, you lose folks because you may, the messaging is not consistent. So I think we've got a lot to learn from that process. I hope we can take that with us so we don't have as much confusion next time. What about summers, summer camp? You know, you're going to hear so many questions from parents on, do I send my kid? How do I make that decision? What's your best advice to them? Well, the first is great news. If they're ages 12 years and older, there's the vaccine. And, you know, number one, two, and three, get your kids vaccinated. It is a safe and fully effective way to prevent coronavirus. So strong recommendation to do that. And thankfully, we've had so many kids already um, get started on that. And, you know, the big part is, remember, since they, there's two doses, uh, you really got to get started now if you're planning for, you know, summer camp later in the summer. So, um, you know, in that situation, but for kids that can't be vaccinated yet, um, you know, there's going to be very specific things that I think the summer camps are going to continue to do to make sure kids can exist safely in those environments. You know, one is to, of course, vaccinate all of those around kids that can't vaccinate, be vaccinated. Number two, do what we know how to do is be very diligent uh, against any signs or symptoms or any, any situation where we think there might be somebody sick at the camps make sure we're doing what we can. And then the mask wearing continues. Um, where practical, where possible, uh, especially indoors, uh, we're going to continue to do that. And I think that's the best way to approach summer camps. And then you have schools coming up. Parents want, want kids back in school. When does that happen? Do you think where every elementary school person that 
they they can't get the vaccine right will still be able to go to school. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that we see this. First of all, you know, we're in a really I think good place in terms of what we're seeing in the number of cases, the percent positive cases, and, and thankfully the deaths have all gone way way down both here locally and across the country. And even globally, we're, we're really starting to see that turnaround, even in India, where the case rates are going down. Um, if we follow that trend by fall, we'll be in a situation where, at least in our community, I think we will be under a low prevalence situation where really there is just little to any uh, cases that are occurring. And if we get to that point in the fall, um, I do think we have a lot more ability to go back to complete classroom in-person learning but, you know, remember, our, our classrooms are really the most socially dense environments in our communities. In other words, if you, if you add up the number of people in a room uh, overall, just by density, you know, our classrooms are, are, are certainly our most socially dense and one of our most socially dense environments. So, you know, I hope we learned from this experience about not just how we work through coronavirus and preventing, preventing this virus, all of the other things that kids get, you know, flu season and all of the other. So I, I think we can take a lot that we've learned from. I think if, if we continue in this direction and we are in that low prevalence situation by fall, I think we're going to be in a comfortable place to be able to go back, even if those students are not yet on the vaccination list. Dr. John Carlo, it was so good to see you, my uh, college on. friend. We yeah. graduated six we're, years ago. Can you believe not, they've gone so fast? <laughs> we're not finished. We're not finished with the interview yet because the main question is, doctor, tell us a Julie Fine in college story. Oh, you know, we, we, <laughs> you know, I and I, I happily do so. But of course, the problem with with telling a story is that she knows just as many stories about That's me right. as That's I know right. about her. So we have this agreement in place where we will both kind of stay quiet and just happily say it was a good place to go to school. And we learned a lot. We were there. Uh -huh. You know where I saw John? The library. <laughs> oh yeah, right, right. <laughs> you guys we loved having you and I will see you for our annual college reunion this I, summer. I hope so. Thank you for spearheading that. Let me know how I can help. <laughs> We're gonna get it done. Don't you worry, I'm determined. Thanks to Maddie Parker, Deborah Peoples, Bob Garrett, and Dr. John Carlo for joining us this week. Stay up to date on the final week of the Texas legislature at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.